I have a lot of responsibility as a refugee, but very few rights. Right to travel, to participate in election, to have my say. I mean, that, that bothers me. And just not for me, but every other refugee. This week's guest has been a long time coming for me, and this conversation did not disappoint. I really enjoyed chatting to the amazing Gowali Pasali, author of The Lightless Sky, the story of his escape from Afghanistan and his journey to safety as a 12-year-old boy. I actually read Gowali's book about four years ago, around the time when my Afghan foster brother Arash had just joined my family, and it impacted me so much. It gave me so much insight and context, and my whole family actually, into what Arash had been through but couldn't quite yet communicate to us. So Gowali's book ended up being an integral part of Arash's integration into our family because it just helped us all to understand so much. Gowali is literally full of information and wisdom and he also just really, really made me laugh with his very dry, tongue-in-cheek sense of humour. Well, Gowali, it's absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm so pleased to be with you. You and I have actually been in contact for a long time, mm-hmm. known who each other were for a long time. I've read your book years ago, but we never actually met until just a couple of weeks ago, sure. right? Yeah. And then before I could even have the chance to ask you, you said to me, I've got a proposition for you. There you go. I want to be on your podcast. Yeah. And here you are. It's like I've self-invited myself. <laughs> it was because I, yeah, I mean, I look up to you in some ways and um, I appreciate the work that you do. And I think when I saw the podcast and the things that you do on social media and how it impacts people, I thought, why not? I, I knew you were going to ask me at some stage. I thought maybe I should just put myself forward. You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara. And together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people working on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. Gowali is the first Afghan to join me on this podcast. His story represents that of many Afghan refugees worldwide. My work, like yours, is for all refugees, but mainly the focus is on Afghans because I, I definitely feel there's a, a lack of solidarity when it comes to Afghans. I'm sure that it may be the case for Eritreans and, and for example, mm-hmm. Somalians and people from Sudan. I mean, it's great that there is some sympathy with the Syrians, but your nationality and your country should not affect the, the sympathy and empathy and solidarity that people show. Uh, and so I, my experience in the last 10 or so years that Afghanistan and Afghans are kind of forgotten, not only by the system in the States. I mean, Afghans, are the, Afghans get the highest refusal rating in the UK, as well as in, across, the, across Europe. And we used to be the largest refugee population in the world and the largest asylum seekers in Europe until 2014. Well, that's something that I really wanted to talk to you about today, actually. And it's not where I thought that we'd start. I thought that would be at the end, but we can start at the end, right? Because I had my own experience of that, really, with three foster brothers, one from Eritrea, one from Sudan and one from Afghanistan. And my Afghan brother had a really tough time of getting his asylum. A very similar scenario to you Mm -hmm. that you talk about in your book. And it really was shocking to me because the severity of his story and the um, application for asylum compared to my Sudanese brother or my Eritrean brother was no better or no worse it was very valid but he still was denied his asylum the first time that was really shocking to me and so this is the problem I have if you go on the foreign office website they will tell you as a British citizen not to travel to Afghanistan because it's dangerous it will literally show you the map it's all red Mm -hmm. literally but it's okay for Afghans to be deported the UK have never stopped deportation to Afghanistan and one of the main problem I feel strongly about is when Afghans come here, especially unaccompanied minors. I got here when I was 13. Of course, they didn't believe my age, dispute up my age and dispute up my nationality. Mm-hmm. But twice the home office threatened to deport me. But I, st- I still find it funny that I don't know where they were sending me to because uh, 
they didn't believe I was from Afghanistan. So it was kind of, you know, I was curious to know. Yeah. I still, I still don't know. I think that this comes back to the lack of information and understanding about the situation in Afghanistan. And that was something that your book really taught me a lot about. You painted a beautiful picture of life in Afghanistan. And in a lot of ways, it was a very new picture to me. Life under the Taliban, actually, and what that looked like for you and your family. I know that we want to encourage everybody to read the book, but I'd love to start from the beginning and for you to give us a little bit of that picture and talk about your early life in Afghanistan. Sure. One of the reasons I went, when I was writing The Lightless Sky, I really wanted to be true to my kind of self in my country and in the situation. So I wanted to give people and readers to inform them that Afghanistan is not what you see in the news and people don't just become refugees for no reason. They become refugees, they become displaced uh, and they're forced to flee because of a circumstance and situation which are out of their control. But I also wanted to show that I had a life before I became a refugee and life was pretty wonderful. So I was born into a family where my father was a doctor and I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. My grandmother was a midwife. I used to go with her to people's houses when women were giving birth. That was a really thought-provoking experience for me because as a child, it made me realize that how much my mother has to go through to give me birth and to carry me nine months in her stomach and how much other mothers go through to give us that bringing in. We owe them, you know, respect and kindness. We had a lot of responsibility from an early age. I used to help my dad in his drugstore, in his pharmacy. Uh, going with my grandma, sometimes I would be like sleepless going to the school because I would have to go with her when people would invite her because we were lived in a very remote district where for a woman to t- in, in labor to give her to give birth, for her for the family to take her to the nearest city, Jalalabad, would either the mother or the child would die because the roads and the condition was so bad. So my, ma- my grandmother was literally <laughs> delivering babies all over the district and people would either bring their wives to our house or they invite her and take her there. And I would be the guy going with her, even though she was really old. And I remember I used to hold her hands going there and I was like coming back. She used to tease me. I was like, Grandma, you don't touch me, okay? Like, you know, <laughs> she used to put her heads in my, in my hairs and, and um, trying to tease me. Because you'd seen where her hands had been exactly, that day. Yes, yes. I was, it was um, don't, without going into too much details. So did you see? Were you in? I would hear all the screaming and the shouting, you know. And, and, and it was acceptable for you to be there because you were a small boy. I, was child, I mean, like, I wasn't, re- I wasn't really allowed to be in the room, but sometimes, I mean, some Afghans, like, Afghans are poor, so it would be like in the corner of the room. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was no electricity, no lights, and so on. But mostly we will be outside, we will hear the shouting, and sometimes. We will go and my grandma will say, oh, the baby's in the wrong side. We ha- I have to make sure that it's it's facing the right direction. And then it would take hours and hours of waiting for that to happen. I said, look, the, the baby is born. Let's go. She said, no, the baby is born. That's the one That's one part of the story. There's there's a lot of other things that I need to help this woman uh, and sort out before we can we can leave. I was, yeah, it was a, it was a good lesson uh, about life. And, and it's amazing how a child is born and how... Somebody gives life, some, one human gives life to another human. It's, it's a really beautiful thing. And so my, ma- my grandmother, you know, God bless her, she, she passed away a few years ago. She was very dear to me. And uh, as a, until before I left home, I used to sleep with her and my granddad. Uh, I was like their son. And <laughs> so I never really spent much time with my own parents. But anyways. Was that because they were busy working? Uh, yes, you know, because I was like the favorite grandchild. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just liked them. When I was born, my father was actually fighting against someone somewhere or saving <laughs> lives because he was a doctor. So he was also a fighter as well as saving lives. Uh, and so, I, yeah, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. But when the war started in 2001, it, it changed everything for us. I mean, you know, my home in my country became a war zone. I can't describe how we lived in constant fear every day. I mean, every night from rocket attacks, from bombardments. And it's serious. I mean, it's again, it's easy for me to say it here sitting in a, in a, in a safe, safe space in place. But when you are there, uh, you know, bombs and you see, uh, we used to call it if uh, B-52s, the, the, the planes which dropped bombs. Whenever we used to hear a sound of plane, which actually I'm hearing now. Yeah, how uh, weird. What a coincidence. <laughs> but, you know, it was scary. It was really was because you never know where they will drop a bomb. Uh, or or maybe somebody from the ground will be targeting it with a, with a missile or the rocket attack. So we used to hide in bunkers at night uh, with my mom and the siblings and, and the women in the house. And we lived, you know, we lived uh, for many months uh, in fear of being killed and a lot of people a lot of people we knew lost their lives houses were destroyed I sadly had members of my family who were killed by the US forces and so it was a situation where you can't even imagine and that's why a lot of people like my family were forced to send me and my brother away Gawali lived during the Taliban reign 
Reading about life in Afghanistan during this time in his book, The Lightless Sky, was eye-opening to me and unpicked my simplistic notions of goodies and baddies. The Taliban were pretty heartless people, but at the same time, I mean, they were not very democratic, but they were successful in some ways. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because again, the sure. lightless guy taught me about life under Taliban rule. And we have a very negative perception of the Taliban. And it's like, you know, goodies, baddies, that's the end of that. I think that's quite a simple picture. So my views of the Taliban has changed a lot, not least because I've been influenced by the Western world, but... Mm-hmm. In no way am I saying, you know, am I defending the Taliban, but I was actually born just before they came in, at the time they came into Afghanistan. So I only experienced like a bit positive side of things because we experienced peace and security and we felt really safe. For the uh, first time in a long time, the country had had sure, that. Under sure, sure. I mean, that's stability. So according to my parents, um, they said before the Taliban, before they came to power, there was a civil war. Around a million Afghans lost their lives. Before the civil war, there was the Russian occupation for eight years where about three million Afghans lost their lives. And about 50,000 Russian troops were killed. And so the Taliban came, put an end to the civil war. Um, they provided, you know, security and justice, even though with an iron stick. I mean, there was a lot of oppressions of women's rights and girls' education and so on. The Taliban were pretty ignorant, take the country backwards. And the Taliban imposed a very strict Islamic law and a very strict backwards um, yeah, because I've seen pictures of Afghanistan in like the 70s and 80s where women are in bikinis yeah, yeah, exactly. on the beach. And that's the problem. Know? This is the thing. Uh, my dad used to say, you know, he said we were willing to give our freedom for security. And he said, what is the point of freedom when you, are, when you can't be, you know, can't, living in al- fear. Exactly. Can't be al- you can't be alive. You could, you know, you could be killed. So by a lot, that's why a lot of people supported them in the beginning. But then they turn into, you know, a lot of, they, they became really, I think power makes you corrupt and they become corrupt and they, they use that power wrongly in, in the, initially when they came came to power people joined them because they were tired of the civil war they were tired of like we didn't have a centralized system so a lot of people supported them but when the government the Taliban government collapsed which we didn't think would happen I mean the whole thing about 9-11 and everything else is happening I don't want to get to the politics of it but yep. there were no Afghans involved in 9-11 and I think um, there's a wonderful book written by an American journalist New York Times journalist it's called The Wrong Enemy she, she argued we were in the wrong country for the wrong reasons I just think the US you know if 9-11 had not happened I wouldn't be sitting with you and I would perhaps you know my wanted to become a doctor like my father I would have not lost members of my family in the war and I would have not sacrificed so much everything was fairly peaceful yeah. under the Taliban Suddenly, the country was at war uh-huh. after the collapse of the government. I don't, I don't want to talk too much about politics. You're absolutely right. But on a personal level and on a, on a people level for your family, what did that look like? And I mean, it destroyed my family. You know, I lost, lost my loved ones to the war. And uh, I don't know any Afghan who have not lost a loved one to the war, either in the last 18 years or in the last 35, 40 years. And not seeing my grandmother passing away, my little sister passed away a few years ago. It's difficult. You grieve, you... If you are there at those occasions, like my brother got married, it was a happy occasion. Um, my sis, my other sister got married, I was not there. So those are things that happens once in a life. And you want to be part of it. And I think being a refugee, you missed out not only on the food and friends and family and loved ones, but you missed out on occasions that are important. So I got married, I would have brought for my mother and family to be there. But they weren't. It saddens me. And I think sometimes it's hard to explain to people the sacrifices that you have to give. And everybody was impacted. All good people, good families were affected by the war and war is never a good thing. I mean, you know, military action. Even been in the UK for over 12 years, I still see the British and American forces in Afghanistan as an occupying forces, as an invaders. Even though I feel like they're very, they need to be there, it's quite necessary now because of the situation, I still think they shouldn't have been there in the, in the first place. Mm-hmm. And when we go and invade countries and intervene in places like Afghanistan or Syria and other parts of the world and in Iraq, we ought to take responsibility. We're happy to actually go and bum countries, but then we wouldn't want to take their refugees. I'll never forget how shocked I was when I first went to Calais and I met many Afghans who told me that they'd worked with the British and the American army, that they spoke perfect English because they'd been translators in the army. And so when they were persecuted... But they were indigenous there, it's like, oh, we don't know you. Who are you? Yeah, they came to the UK and then they were were turned away. And that was really shocking to me because we have this charity, you know, Help for Heroes. Mm -hmm. I think that those heroes need to extend to the Afghan heroes that worked with our forces as as well. I mean, they're definitely seen by by the Taliban as traitors, but uh, as for the for the for the US, the UK governments or the army, I mean, there was a case recently an Afghan who was a translator. There was a dispatches program that interviewed this Afghan translator, and he said, "Look, you know, I was a friend in need. You know, when I need Britain, I've been turned away." And so, it's some really terrible stories. I mean, ultimately, I just think you know, Britain needs to lead. 
and welcome people. And I think I end up here for a reason. I mean, you know, I, I travel through like, you know, 10 countries, 11,000 miles. I was unwelcomed. And I mean, I hear these arguments a lot that, oh, why don't you stay in a country, the first safest country? And you, why don't you, I hear people, why don't you go to Pakistan or Iran? Why don't mm. you go to a Muslim country? The, the comments they make, it's not, first of all, it's not very helpful. They just, you know, they want to uh, prove you wrong or they just, they, you know, I mean, there's, you can smell the racism in there. But mm-hmm. ultimately, some people have a valid point of view saying, you know, why don't, why don't those refugees stay in other countries? Well, First of all, a lot of other countries do take refugees, like France and Germany and others. Yeah, many and, do go to other yeah. countries, right? And why do we expect other countries to to take and we're not willing to share the, the, the burden or at least play our, our part? I mean, like the people in Cali, for example, at the peak in 2015, there was about mm-hmm. 10,000 refugees. Mm-hmm. That was part of a million people who entered Europe. So 10,000 is a very small percentage. That's what I always say, Gawali, is that so many people do go to the first safe country. Look at Lebanon, look at Jordan, yeah, look at Turkey, Turkey Pakistan, you Iran. Know, yeah. I mean, like, you know. and, and actually that percentage that comes to the UK is so small. If you ask people in a t- any talk that I do, how many Syrians do you know? How many Afghans do you know? How many Eritreans do you know? They don't know any. They're mm-hmm. not living around people that are arriving as refugees. They're not cool. seeing that as an impact on their lives. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. We talked a little bit more about the negative comments that Gowali receives online. Go back to your country and you hear all sorts of comments, which I, people write to me on Twitter and stuff and social media, which is, I mean, some people are just mean. Yeah, some be like, oh, what are you talking about? So the other day I did, I had an interview with the BBC Breakfast about uh, the people cha- crossing the channel and I got bombarded with all sorts of abusive language and uh, really hurtful comments from people sitting behind their computers and it it's upset me. I mean, I try not to read comments, and especially like when I write articles and things, or when something comes out, I, I try not to read the comments from from people. But of course, there are a lot of positive comments as well. But mostly, people hate me without knowing me. People hate refugees without meeting a refugee. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. I don't hate nobody, and I think we have a Pashto saying. You know, there's a there's a poem like, or there is also a saying that there is no enough time in this world for love. I wonder how people find time to hate. <laughs> And it, it bothers me greatly. And I want people to be, you know, aware and educated that me being in the UK, I'm not taking, not really taking anybody's job. I'm not taking anybody's money. I hear this debate around how we should be, you know, we should be allowing refugees because they will contribute. And I think, no, it's not really about the contribution that we make, but it's about what is right. It's our obligation under the international law. We live in a globalized world. If somebody is fleeing from war and conflict, we ought to welcome them and treat them humanely, not just because they're going to contribute and make a, be a good citizen, but just because it's the right thing to do. And the contribution will happen automatically. Refugees are not people who will sit at home and take benefits. I mean, again, asylum seekers are not allowed to work. They're not allowed to take benefits. And you will hear people say, oh, they come here, they take our jobs, they take our benefits. I mean... They can't be taking both, otherwise they'll exactly. be very clever. <laughs> uh, at the same time, they I get love five, it. Yeah, five pounds a day to live on. So I've been trying to challenge those myths and negativities, and it's hard. I mean, sometimes, you know, I'm trying to advocate and campaign for refugees' rights and do whatever I can, and then here's all these negative comments from people. But nevertheless, I know I still love Afghanistan, and I miss my family, and I love to be able to go back. It's been 12 years since I left. So you were 12 when you left, right, with your older brother? Mm-hmm. I never really wanted to leave. That wasn't my choice. Particularly my mother and my grandmother actually had much of a say. To to send us to Europe, we were in the hands and mercy of smugglers. Uh, we traveled to Pakistan, to Peshawar. From there, the journey began. And I was separated from my brother before even the, the, the start of the journey, which was, I was very sad about it. I was very upset. But actually, and in hindsight, it was a very positive thing that the smugglers did because, uh, I mean, now I reflect back. At the time I cried, I was like, oh, I want to see my brother. But they said, you will see him at the next destination. I arrived in Iran and he was nowhere to be seen. Everywhere I went, I asked for him. Now I think about it, we would not have been able to see each other suffer so much and go through so much pain. Uh, and also, I mean, it made me quite determined to find him. So I, one of the, the people say, how did he manage to, you know, not give up on this one year long journey as a child? One was not to let my mother's down because she said to me, no matter how bad it gets, don't come back and stay, you know, hold on to each other's hands and also to find my brother. And I just, you know, I had faith and hope that things will just work out. You know, not having my brother with me impacted me, you know, tremendously in, in a lot of negative ways, but also it made me more determined to look for him uh, and to find him. So that was actually one of the reasons I came to the UK. Otherwise, I would have perhaps stayed in Italy. Uh, so anyway, the journey continued from like Iran and then to Turkey. I've never been outside of Afghanistan before. I was scared because even though I had a passport, the trafficker, the smuggler, take it away from us. The 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 agent takes take our passports away, and then we cross to Turkey, walking all night on foot. It's easy to say, but we were really afraid and we were tired. We were exhausted physically. 
you know, walking all night over the mountain and scared, of, you know, we don't want to be arrested, you know, what's going to happen to us, you know. And then to travel across Turkey in, in trucks during the day, walking at nights over mountains and awaiting checkpoints and military points. It was complicated. And then we were like, you know, treated as a commodity by the smugglers. They just made money out of our desperation, I guess. You know, arriving in Istanbul, which was a beautiful city, but then again, we were not allowed to see it. We were kept in basements for a lot of the time. And then Istanbul one day got to fit into the seals of the train to go to Bulgaria. We had to jump around a moving train. Yeah, I've seen things that, you know, I, I, it's, it's hard for me to imagine. And again, speaking about it is quite easy. But when I was going through it, the feelings, the emotions was going through my, 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 myself <laughs> and the experiences was, was horrendous. It was, it was something that I didn't expect it. Uh, I, I didn't know what's going to happen if things goes wrong. I mean, I was lucky I didn't hurt myself as much as other people who, who jumped from the moving train. People were seriously injured. We ended up in hospital before taken to prison in Bulgaria. I was hoping this was a European country. We would be treated with some sort of respect and dignity and our humor rights be respected. But actually, there was nothing European or humane about Bulgaria. After three, four days in prison, then we were deported back to Turkey. To keep it short, I was sometime later, I was arrested in Turkey, spent two weeks in Istanbul in a prison with like criminals, people who were murderers and drug dealers. And our crime was just seeking safety. And, and, and how old were you at this point? Twelve. And then we were deported all the way back to Iran. Going back was more harder than coming from the other side. The issue I had was if I go home, I didn't really care about the war implication of things, uh, the, the conflict that we had and how we, you know, BB, uh, inc- the Taliban would want to recruit me to become a fighter, to take revenge and also to fight a holy war, so-called holy war. At the same time, it's like if I go home, my mother will be asking me about my brother. And no matter what I say, she'll think he's dead. And she told me not to come back. So, uh, you know, I managed to run away from the Iranian police prison. Third time lucky, uh, made it to Greece on a, on a boat designed for 30 people. They put 120 of us in it. We actually traveled from um, Izmir. I know you spend a lot of time in Izmir. I have. a lot of your social media mm-hmm. posts. It's a beautiful place, but we, we had a terrible time in Izmir. So we were taken to some like mountains. Uh, and then we were, um, we were supposed to board a boat to Greece mm-hmm. the, that night. The boat did not arrive. We went to the sea and then we had to walk back to the jungle, the forest. We stayed there for three days and three nights. The smugglers, the traffickers were nowhere to be seen. We considered giving ourselves to the police or finding some way to get out of there. But we knew how bad, brutal the Turkish authorities were and how they're going to either deport us or, you know, not going to treat us any better. So we stayed there and thankfully the smuggler came back the third night with a box of tomatoes and some water and Turkish bread, which we were grateful for. They give us a tomato each, half of ekmek. You know, it's called ekmek. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, half a glass of water. And then take, an, take us in a small speedboat to a bigger boat. The big boat was not really big. They somehow managed to put 60 or 70 people inside in the boat. We were supposed to be in the sea for four hours, uh, they told us. and ended up being in the sea for almost 48 hours. Uh, food, everything ran out, I mean, the first night. I was frightened. I was really, really scared of the waves. Never been in the sea before. And definitely saw deaths on many occasions. But here I was like certain we were going to die. We were in the middle of the sea and our boat broke down and I thought we were going to die. And I see the stories of people drowning. About 15,000 been killed in the last five years or so. That's the number that we are aware of. I mean, there could be more. Who knows? Those are people just like you and me with hopes and dreams and ambitions. Left their families and everything. Their loved ones for a better future. But actually their life has ended in such a terrible way and it just breaks my heart and that's what makes me determined to do what I do and what of course what you do if the Greek Coast Guard had not came in to rescue us and would have drowned and the concern I had in my head was that my mother will not know what has happened to me like death is going to come to all of us uh, but to die in the middle of the sea and your family not knowing what's you know what has happened to you and my mom living hope that I will come home one day it's it's kind of uh, it's sad. And so I was had a conversation with God. I mean, I, quite, I became quite religious on the journey. I mean, I had nothing else to do either. But I didn't you know, read the Quran, did my <laughs> five daily prayer and did extra prayers and trying to seek help from the Supreme Being. I said, you know, I don't, I don't you can't, you can't let us die here in the middle of the sea, in the middle of nowhere. So thankfully, we survived. And uh, we were rescued. And there are many others who are not as lucky as I was. And we were taken to safety by the Greek Coast Guards. And then uh, the local people brought us water and food. It was such a wonderful act of kindness by the strangers. Uh, we ate so much and we all got sick because we hadn't had proper food for a week. I drank a whole one litre bottle of water. and uh, mm-hmm. Your poor little wonderful. stomach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
I had a question for Gulwali about the people smugglers that were taking him on this journey. I've met some smugglers along the way, along like my you. journey. I know. But obviously we have this negative perception of a people smuggler. And of course, I'm sure that you had a lot of terrible um, experiences. I know that you did. But some smugglers have said to me that they're, it's supply and demand, right? Yeah, that they it's a market. Are, it's a, it's a, they, and, and that they are actually offering service. what people really want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're the only people doing that. Uh-huh. And did you find that you did come across smugglers that were actually yeah, trying some really to... nice human beings, yeah. I mean, like I stayed with a smuggler in, um, in the border of uh, Turkey and Iran. Great guy. We called him the Black Wolf. And I told him, <laughs> you're a smuggler. And he said, look, you're insulting me. I'm mere facilitator. And, you know, he hosted her in his house as guests for about two weeks. So there was other occasions where the family treated us really well. The way the smuggling works is there's a, it's a business model, basically. So there's like the, the CEO, the guy who my family paid money to in Pakistan or mm-hmm. in Afghanistan somewhere, in, in Kabul or Peshawar. So then they have, the, they have like a directors and country representatives and regional representatives. And they have like a huge army of people who are... Uh, who are facilitators, guides, and drivers. And some of them were very nice. I mean, survived because of them. I'm here speaking to you. But also, if I had been killed, the the, the people who made the money wouldn't have cared less. Mm-hmm. But also, they, it's about their reputation. So they want to make sure things goes well. So I met about 20, 25 to 30 smugglers. And the smuggling and trafficking kind of becomes, I mean, the UN definition is blurred because like smuggling is when you're smuggled, trafficking is when you're trafficked What's against your will. So the difference is smuggling is kind of, it's not against your will. Like my family paid was was kind of maybe against my will, but I didn't have mm-hmm. to say in it. But trafficking is when you things are done against your will. You're trafficked, uh, but it it becomes blurred on the mm-hmm. journey. There are times where you you have no say whatsoever, and then you are just being put in dangerous situations, and you are just being forced to do things that you wouldn't do as a normal human being. And so I feel like we became on the journey. You know, one of the things that was interesting, we became like sheep, and they were our shepherds. And we just follow orders without questioning anything. And also, sometimes we just didn't have the, the authority to question. Mm-hmm. And we just, like, well, as I said, mere convenience for them. I mean, you know, commodity, and they just treat us as, as such. And I, I would blame the world governance because they don't have a safer and legal route for people to travel. Exactly. If I was able to climb asylum in Iran or for Turkey or whatever, or in Greece for another EU countries or something, you know, mm-hmm. then I wouldn't be risking it. But because there's no mechanism in place, so people continue on their journeys. So, I, I you know... The smuggling, the trafficking industry is a multi-billion pound industry. It wouldn't exist if it wasn't for our policies. And our laws, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's a really interesting thing to me, the idea that we have such kind of clear-cut lines of good and bad. And it's the same when we're talking about the Taliban and Mm. the US government and the situation in Afghanistan, but also when it comes to smugglers, you know, it's like it doesn't fit into a box like that, does it? That they're still people. People are desperate in the smugglers. Mm -hmm. I want to make money. They're in it for business. Or some of them perhaps may be in it for moral reasons, you know? Yeah. And and what I think is when they do live up to their reputation is when they're exploiting people's suffering and desperation. And of course, that happens a lot. But then I like to think that there are also people that were still people are humans that looked out for you along the way especially I mean, a lot of a kind people i met and a lot of unkind people mm-hmm. so it was like the you know i saw humanity and goodness as, as well as, mm-hmm. yeah and, and badness so the end of the day they were humans but also because we were in such a desperate situations and in, in, in circumstances that people just take advantage of you and i was lucky that i had friends and companions who stood up for me and supported me otherwise i was a child and so whenever i you know see people in cali and other places children again it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. it makes me really really bothered and upset and, and it troubles me that they could be exploited, they're most vulnerable, and we need to mm-hmm. be helping and supporting them. Absolutely. So from Greece, how did you get to Calais? So I met a smuggler in Patra, and the first time in about nine months, I have heard about my brother from him, which was great. And he said, he met him a few months ago, and he was heading to the UK. I said, okay, wonderful, that's nice to know, but how do I get to the UK? Yeah. He helped me put me on the top of a lorry engine. I mean, there was a discussion about money. He wanted 800 euros or something. I didn't have 800 euros, so I was like hoping to see. I became very smart on the journey. As a child, I was quite intelligent, but I became even more smart to learn the art of the, the game, you know, the, the way things were done. So I said, we'll discuss it, and he put me on top of a lorry engine. It was so hot. He's like, just stay there. If you get to the boat, then you can go down. And I said, okay. I was literally underneath the lorry. On the top of the engine. It was a very small space. I was like crammed in there. Like a small cart. I don't know. But four or five hours later, we arrived in Italy. I had like a stone or rock in my bag. After a few hours on the motorway, the lorry was going so fast. I was frightened because I could see the tires. And I thought if I let go of my hands, I'll be underneath, you know. And the engine was getting hotter and hotter. 
I got the driver's attention with a rock in my bag and he he didn't stop for a good while. He thought there were some technical issues in his lorry and then he stopped. Before he came down, I came, I came underneath his engine and he saw me. He was so shocked and he couldn't believe it. He was standing there in the, in the motorway telling people, look at this guy. Oh my God. I was there, there was nothing. It was like farms, you know, oranges and grapes. I walk up and down this motorway and I don't know what to do. So everybody was on their phone. The police arrived. I, was, I ran towards them. I mean, I never really had a good experience of police, so I mean, but I would run towards them. And they were really, really kind people. Got me into the car and asked me uh, my age, my name and my nationality. And we, we somehow spoke and took me to the police station. Well, before the police station, they asked me if I was hungry. And I said, yeah. And they got me some like orange juice and, and croissants uh. and biscuits. <laughs> they didn't have to, but they got me some, yeah, some food. They took me to our children's home. And I had an amazing two weeks there. I was safe. I was secure. They were very, very kind to me. I had a home, I could take shower, I had food for the first time, like proper being treated as a child. And if it wasn't for my brother, I would have stayed there. Um, but they wouldn't understand my situation and I ran away from that place. I jumped from a third floor. I felt still guilty, but I love to go back and find the people. Maybe that's a trip that we should do. I love to do we it. We should yeah, go back go and, and try and, and the source them, find, yeah, find those the people. Map. Would you recognize them, do you think? I have their names. So your brother was your North Star, basically. Yeah, kind of, yeah, he kind was of thing. your leading, guiding light. Oh, yeah, and <laughs> so uh, I was in Rome and I saw people sleeping in carton boxes, people sleeping in the park. I was a little, I mean, actually I was disappointed and I was sad that I left a really nice children's home and like, you know, a good life. And, you know, I had clothes, I had been fed well and the people were trying to take care of me. They were very supportive and I felt like terrible inside that I left them. And then... Um, in Rome the next day it was Eid Day. I didn't even knew it was Eid Day. I mean, time didn't really matter on the journey because you just think, you try to count days and then you realize, well, there's no point. It just, you know, it doesn't make a difference. Sometimes you'll be in a, in a, in a basement for months and weeks. Um, and so you just think about survivals, food and water and shelter and so on. In Rome, Gowali was searching for anyone who might have any news about the whereabouts of his brother. When I found this Afghan guy, he was my brother's friend. It was a really wonderful story in itself and told me everything about my brother that I wanted to know. And he helped me. He took me home. He buy me clothes and brought me a ticket to get me to... Uh, I owe him big time. I should go back. I used to speak to him, but now I don't have his number. Actually, I need to go back and, and see him in Italy and thank him. I need to, I'll, I'll find him somehow. This boy had travelled together with Gowali's brother to the jungle in Calais. He told me that Calais was a, a really inhumane place. He spent a few months there. He said, be careful. He gave me a lot of good advice. That's where your brother was. Yeah, so they were together and then it didn't work out for him and my brother got across to England. The next day I went to Calais. The jungle was more miserable than I thought. I was there for a month until I wrote the book. I felt like I was there for three months. Mm -hmm. Running after the police, being arrested daily, running after lorries. There was only about three, four hundred people at the time when I was there. It's incredible, actually, because nobody, I think, in general English life knew about the jungle till about 2015. True. But true. we're talking about what year are we in now? 2007. So actually, there's been people in Calais trying to cross to the UK for years and years and years. Sure. We tried everything, the trains, the lorries, back and forth. Some people went to Dunkirk. We call it Dunkirk. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the right name, Dunkirk. I don't know. You know, there was a camp of about a thousand people that's just been um, evacuated so sad, just yeah, this I saw week. the videos and photos yeah. from help refugees. Uh-huh. I mean, the thing is, I wish this was history. What I'm telling you is it's happening now. Uh -huh. And that is what is most troubling. So after about a month of hundred attempts and going through all sorts of humiliations, misery and cold and like, you know, I wanted to give up. I was so close yet. I was so far. Once burned my face with chemicals in a truck. Such a bad experience. My face was burning and I couldn't, like, I had to keep it outside from the blanket all the time and keep it to the wind. Do you know what those chemicals were? Oh, no, because I thought some, when I got into it, I thought it was like some sort of beans or something. And then I, when I come out, my face was black and then I washed it. It made things worse. Mm. I think it was some sort of coal, uh, some chemicals. I don't know. I got a cream and stuff from the hospital. It was burning for months. It's a miracle that you look like you do now. Well, then, well, I think my, my skin, um, some skins peel up from this, from my face. Uh-huh. So now you've got a new, brand new baby face maybe, underneath. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> And when people say, oh, why don't people st stay in France? Yes, there are a lot of people who stay in France, but there are thousands in the streets in Paris. There are thousands in Calais. And, and so don't I know that? This, as you say, is not history. I was in Paris last week. I had took an Afghan boy 
and uh, a boy from the Ivory Coast and Neritrain boy all for some food and then they just went off into the night as I went back to my Airbnb and I just felt terrible about it that there's still hundreds of kids unaccompanied kids like you living on the street in Paris at sure. the moment I, I'm, I was grateful to the strangers and people who give us food and water and So I crossed to the UK in uh, in a refrigerator lorry from um, Calais. After about my 100th attempt, I made it to the UK. It was a freezer. Mm -hmm. Could have, you know, been killed if the drivers had put it on. So it just was lucky that it wasn't on. There was nothing in there. No. Well, it was full of bananas. Okay. (laughs) Tried to eat them, but it was was not... It was not ready. Oh, no. Um, but uh, <laughs> When they make your teeth feel all furry, I know exactly what you mean. It was completely green, so then it was like, yeah, <laughs> to bother opening them. Getting to the UK, you know, I felt kind of relieved and hoping to be with, to meet my brother and to be here, but it was not as simple as that. It was a long process, a long journey, another struggle, another battle, and the end of the beginning, or the beginning of an end. Mm-hmm. Gawali was placed in a centre for unaccompanied refugee children in Kent, in the south of England. Tell me about the moment that you were reunited with your brother. The story of me meeting my brother was really wonderful. I was trying to get the Home Office to help me, and the Home Office were pretty unhelpful. And so the social services, they said, oh, we can't really find your brother, um, because there are like millions of people in Britain, and I'm sure they could have if they checked, you know, but giving him his name and date of birth and everything because I didn't know where he was where he was I knew he was in the UK but I didn't know where he was and how could how to get hold of him I can't imagine how frustrating that must have been that you'd made this whole journey to find him you'd made it to the country that you knew that he was in and you still go and find him yeah uh, and then one day there was a there was a trip to London I was supposed to go on this trip to see you know museums and stuff and gallery a day out in London we used to we were treated really nicely there was about 20 or so of us unaccompanied minors it was a good place the social workers and everyone was very nice and kind we were given good food and you know treated fairly goodly but the problem I had was my age dispute and I was angry nobody was listening to me and you know and no wonder you looked older than you were considering what you'd been through you know you've had your childhood stolen away from you so no wonder yeah and I still look old I mean you know and also there's a different genetic thing as well Asians or Afghans particularly we look old because of the extreme mountainous environment mm. and um, and of course I was very intelligent they're like oh you're too smart you're too intelligent I'm like, sorry can't help it Just you like, got penalised for being too hum- intelligent I should stay humble uh, but uh, now you're 25 right almost yeah almost 25 and yeah I would. I bet people think you're older than that yeah some people think that you look 30 and like yeah thank you very much one day I walked out of um, the centre because I was angry with the whole situation and then um, and then I thought, oh, where am I going? What am I going to do? And I took a train to Tamridge. That's where my family live. There you go, Tamridge Well. I went to Tamridge or Tamridge Well. I used to go to Tamridge Well every Friday for Friday prayer. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I had nowhere to go. And then I, went, I called them back. I said, I'm sorry, I want to come back. And they had to pick me up from the station. And the centre people were really angry with me because they all liked me. And then, you know, I liked them. Then they said, we're disappointed in you. Because you ran away. Yeah. And then I said, I'm sorry. But um, I felt I was protesting, you know. Yeah. And they said, you're not going on this trip tomorrow. As, as a punishment I was like fine so I locked myself in a room and I was angry the guys came back and said oh guess who we met and I was like do I care who you met just like leave on me on the trip on yeah, the London trip yeah and then I said do I don't care and they said oh we met your brother <gasps> and I was like okay now we can talk I was really wonderful because the guys knew I had a brother we were trying to find him at the time, the social media was not very, uh, it was not um, a thing at then. Yeah, uh, no one was on Instagram or Snapchat yet. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yes. See, I feel, I feel old now. There you go. I know, we're too old for Snapchat <laughs> now, Gawali. So they, they were somewhere near London, Ireland and Bridge or somewhere. And they came across in the afternoon, uh, late, evening, late afternoon. They met some, there was a group of um, students coming from Manchester. My brother was in this group. He was studying at Manchester College at the time. And then he realized this was like new Afghans and he came over to talk to them. I mean, we Afghans talk to Afghans, you know, I'm, I'm sure you, you know that. spot each other. Yeah, of course. I think it's like, it's pretty normal. If, you see, if I see someone, especially if he's new the con- to the country, I will recognize that he's a new Afghan, uh-huh. a newcomer. So they started talking to each other and then they're like, oh, you look like someone who know and you talk as fast as him and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, yeah. And then they, they kind of worked it out. And so it was really wonderful. And then he called the next day. I couldn't oh believe God, it. I can't believe that like, you had so- not almost been on that trip yes. with them. Yeah. I'm, I'm, it was good so I was not on the trip, so in a way. Why? Because then you would have seen him. Yeah, but then it was better this way. So Yeah, I, I guess so. And then um, they, he called in a few days later. He visited me and stayed with us for a day or two. It was really wonderful. And how did that feel? We can't Great. just gloss over that I think very it was, important it was, it was, day. It was such an un- unreal and surreal, is that the word? Surreal, surreal yeah. Feeling because, you know, 
we we made it and we were safe and it was good that he was you know he was alive and I was alive and he was also looking for me and I was looking for him and uh, I mean things happens for a reason I think we met through faith in faith it was meant to happen it was supposed to be like that and at the right time as well like you said before like maybe actually it was easier to go through that journey without having to witness each other mm-hmm. going through that suffering which is something that I'd never thought about before through, exactly so do the so, smugglers do that on purpose sometimes uh, not really but then sometimes they don't have choice they just have one mm. there was one space for this on the top of a lorry engine and they could only put me yeah. there like maybe this two just makes it more difficult yeah but yeah and then wanted to live with him he was living in Manchester but it was you know bureaucracy was making it almost impossible yeah. so it took me many many months before i was able to actually years before i was able to live with him you have seen things i have not he's experiencing a lot of mental health issues now and going through difficulties where is he now he lives with me and he's going through um through tough times you know he's just not mentally fit yeah i'm i'm hoping things will work out for him and and you know it's it's crazy like i advocate and campaign on behalf of refugees and i can't really help my own brother no but nobody uh, can you know exactly. so that's not in your control exactly but I hope the home office will, will be kind and humane towards him and his situation. You talk about the fact that, you know, this is actually, you can talk about your journey and your story quite easily and openly now. You've done so hundreds of times since you've been here. But do you feel that there are still lasting impacts from this journey and this experience that you've been through? Indeed. So there are nights, you know, I wake up, I have nightmares. On Sunday, there was a bombing in Afghanistan where... 40 people were killed in a, in a in a wedding and so whenever i see news and see people like people are you know people drowning or fighting back home it is traveling and it brings back memories it resonates uh, i still have i think emotionally and mentally it still impacts me uh, even to this day the problem really doesn't doesn't really go away i think if i had some counseling in early days but to be honest one thing that really helped me is keeping myself busy and being active and engaged with things and being able to make a difference and have an impact on people's lives, it, it's a positive thing. And I think you have to just reconcile and kind of live with it. Um, it's it's tough. I mean, it's 12 years I've not seen my mom and, uh, you know, my siblings, and I love to be able to see them. Totally. And, I can't even begin to understand not seeing your family for 12 years. Do you, ha- do you have a plan once you have citizenship to go back to I Afghanistan? To, yeah, I love to. But the, the, the security situation is so bad. It's worse than what it was when I left. So I'm I'm definitely fearing and I'm scared, you know. But I hope somehow to be able to see my, my family. My family, my mom sent me here to save me, but she also lost me in some ways. So since you've been here, Gowali, you wrote this incredible book, The Lightless Sky. How did that come about? That's a good, that's a good story. All right, uh, okay. great. I like a good story. <laughs> so, I mean, things doesn't happen overnight. I think things happen because of all the little things that I was doing. So I was, once I had a chance in 2014, when I started university at Manchester to do a TEDx talk, which you have done one. Uh-huh, oh, I you've done two. I've done one, but I'd like to do a second because it was years two. ago. So uh, you've done two. I have. So I did a talk at Manchester Uni, uh, Manchester, TEDx Manchester event in 2014, in of a thousand people. So I told the story and it was Did you was get nervous? Right. I was, but it was all right. I mean, I think I didn't do a good job, but somehow somebody saw the story in the States a lady called Brandy, she got in touch and said, oh, the story is really interesting and um, I'll help you write a book if you're interested. I said, sounds good. She didn't just want to write the story. She believed in it. You know, she she was well on board. So I said, that's what I need. So she certainly helped me put my words on paper. I mean, English is my fifth language, so it would have been quite tough. to it would be- Fifth language. <laughs> yes. Can we just not just skip over that? English is your fifth language. Yeah, <laughs> that's it was, incredible. And so it was great. I mean, it was it was emotionally and mentally very difficult when we, we came to write it. It took us a few months or a year, actually. And to work through it, and the more we spoke, the more things came to me. It was published in 2015 October. Yeah, it was my 20th birthday. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, uh, 20th birthday. What year? 2015. Yeah, four years ago. Yeah, so I think my my 20th. Yeah, my 20th birthday. Then since then, it's been published in the states, and then in France, Germany, Italy, Romania for some reason, which is good, which is good, and also China. So it's it's been great. And then I've been able to travel. I used to kind of tell my story sometimes, but with the book, I have moral authority, I guess. Absolutely. So a lot of published author, you know. So that makes some... a difference. And so I've done loads. I've been like oh, hundreds of interviews with like media. And I just wanted to raise awareness and inform people and educate people about the refugee story and the struggles that we go through. And I just want them to help and support refugees in, in the small ways that we discuss, you know. And also, at least, you know, be kind. The message, I mean, the book is not just about my story. It's about messages of friendship, about hope and about optimism and 
uh, overcoming adversity. And so it's a mixture of all sorts of things. And people writing me from across the world. I mean, people writing me from Sri Lanka, Australia, South Africa, Brazil, the States, Canada, you know, Australia, New Zealand. Like, it's amazing. And people actually send me handwritten letters as well, which is great. That's beautiful. Uh, it's just wonderful. A lady once wrote to me from Switzerland. It was one of the sweetest things I've received. And then uh, one day, me and my wife were traveling in Switzerland. There was the address of the ladies on. So I just surprised her for a uh, surprise. Her and a visit. No way. <laughs> you went to visit her. That's so, yeah, so cool. I was, I was near, near the city. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, that lady she wrote to me, she lives nearby. Wow. So you never know if you write to me, I might just like, you know. You might just pop up on the, the doorstep. Yeah. Hello. So the book has opened up a world of opportunities for you, actually. Once he had been in the UK for five years, Gowali finally got the documents he needed to enable him to travel. So I went back to Cali in 2014, I think, mm-hmm. 13, 14. <sighs> I was shocked at what I've seen. And then the, the, it was the early days when they started building the self, like the unofficial, the unofficial camp, mm-hmm. which was kind of good because then people were there supporting each other and stuff. But also it was becoming like, you know, people open shops and restaurants. I think I didn't know how I felt, but I feel that place should not have existed. There should not have been need for the, the jungle, the camp. But then when it was destroyed, it made things even more worse. Well, exactly. Vulnerable people in a I totally position. agree with you. I, I had real mixed feelings Same. and I was confused by the fact that it was a place that I thought it shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. People shouldn't be living like that. It was that. good it was there at least. Yet when it was destroyed or when it was demolished, I was devastated. Sure. And that was because there was no alternative option for mm-hmm. those people there that actually they'd created the best of a bad situation. And for that to be taken away was even more devastating. Indeed. And there's a lot of people who are coming to the UK, they come here because of family reason, because of cultures, language. I don't know, like all sorts of reasons people want to come here. And because a lot of the time they're not welcomed in other places. And even in France, when you're in Cali, you don't feel welcome, you know. Mm. So you, why would you want to stay in a country which treats you Absolutely, like a, especially in Calais, right? I heard stories of refugees walking along the road and cars purposely swerving towards them to scare them. And yeah, sure. people throwing things into the camp, like from the motorway. And, and uh, the police, to be honest, like the, the authorities, like, you know, they're burning people's blankets and taking away people's mm-hmm. shoes. It's like, I don't know where we're heading with this. I think we've got to find a better way and solution for it. Uh, especially like the whole Brexit thing is happening. <laughs> don't get me started. But <laughs> I just feel we need to find a better and humane way in dealing with this situation. Uh, we shouldn't expect France to deal with it all, or Sweden or Germany and other European countries. We need to play our fair share. We were supposed to take 3,000 unaccompanied minors and we ended up taking less than 300 mm-hmm. and made a U-turn. So like, what does that say about our responsibility and our role in the world? We were supposed to be outward-looking Britain, supposed to be leading in a humanitarian crisis, but we wash our hands of responsibility and build, spend 30 million or so building fences and walls in Cali. Absolutely. I mean, we built walls before Trump thought of one. And and we're so outraged by Trump's wall, oh, yeah. but we're building our own. Well, and no, we have built it before Trump yeah, became yeah, president. Yeah. So, yeah. I saw millions of pounds worth of fencing and yeah. security in Calais. Spend that money wisely and humanely. I mean, like, yeah. you know, this problem is not going to go away. We had to find a sustainable solution for it. I mean, the first thing is we, if, if there was no wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Eritrea, there was no this conflict of like people being forced to do things against their will then people wouldn't leave and we should support communities and, and people in their own countries. You know, I don't want to be here. I want to be with my loved ones. I don't care how poor and rich I am or how successful or unsuccessful I am. That's not the point. The point is people who want to be with their families. I mean, who don't want to be with their family? I have um, a very positive experience of Britain uh, that people are very welcoming, people are very open, and people are kind, but the majority of them are silent. They're good people, but they don't speak out. Mm-hmm. The minority who are mean, they speak out. They wouldn't tell me the things that they would say in the media to my face. Those messages that you say that you got on the bottom of an article, nobody would say those to your face. People exactly. Are I mean, if they say to my face, I would maybe be able to respond in some ways mm-hmm. and say, look, you know, that's not right. And I just think, you know, good people need to speak out. Uh, I, I always advise people to you know, write to their MP, to get involved with their local refugee charities like refugee welcome groups and support in charities like, you know, the Worldwide Tribes and others who are working in the front line. Um, and I set up a charity called My Bright Kite to support young refugees in the north and continue raising awareness. I think going on demonstrations, working with local councils. And I, a lot of the time I encourage people if they have a space to foster. I think fostering is a very rewarding experience. So, you know, we shouldn't I feel overwhelmed. I absolutely agree. There you go. <laughs> I think, you know, we shouldn't feel overwhelmed. I mean, we do feel overwhelmed because of the crisis. And to be honest, it's a crisis for the people who are making the journey, not for us. Not really a crisis for us, it's for the people who are going through it. Uh, and there are, you know, things, little things we could do to make life better for people and support and help them in some ways. And I just feel we shouldn't feel hopeless or helpless. We should, you know, just like start somewhere. 
do do something absolutely and that's what the worldwide tribe is about is that we all have something to give whatever that looks like it could be look different for everybody you might be a graphic designer you might be able to help someone with their cv and help them get a job it doesn't mean going to volunteer in calais or going to help save people from the mediterranean sea it could be right here in your community yeah small things small things like as tesco says every little helps exactly Uh, (laughs) we all have the ability to touch people's lives i wouldn't be here in the situation that i am i wouldn't have achieved all the things I've done. I mean, you know, carried the Olympic torch, finished school with really good grades, A-levels and GCCs, and then went on to get my politics degree from Manchester. I mean, that's just one liner, but it took me years of struggles and hard work <laughs> and determination and sweats and sleepless nights. And then, you know, just finished my master's at Coventry. All those things that happened because individuals believed in me, invested in me in some ways, you know, by befriending me, by being my mentors. And like small things people do, it it, it goes a long, a long way. Absolutely. Those small acts. Small act yeah, of kindness can... is definitely important. Like it's not just for refugees, for all just as human beings. Uh-huh. You know, maybe having a difficult day and just be kind to people, just smile at them and just show. Yeah, I think if you ask people what's the, the last random kind act that you did for someone, people would have to rack their brains because sure. we, we don't integrate that into our lives enough. It's very individualistic, you know? I think. Thank you for the opportunity to share with you um, in person as well. Thank you so much for being here today. Honestly, it means a lot and I can't wait for everybody to listen to it and subsequently read your book. Excellent. Well, yes, thank you very much. time for lunch. Thank you for listening to Gowali's Journey. If you'd like to know more incredible details about it, then I would definitely recommend reading his book, The Lightless Sky. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please subscribe and leave us a review. It will really help me to keep bringing you more stories just like this. I'd also love to know your thoughts and what you'd like to hear more of. To let me know, head over to our Instagram account at the Worldwide Tribe. Follow and leave me a comment or direct message. It's also now November, so Christmas is literally around the corner and we have some amazing options for sustainable and conscious presence supporting refugees at our shop, which you can find at theworldwidetribe.com. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one Worldwide Tribe. Big thanks to Alexander Wells for composing our original music and mixing this episode.